Hello, my name is Nick Butler. I'm a geriatrician with the Department of Family Medicine here at the University of Iowa. And today, uh, my title is Choosing Wisely, and what it really is, is it's specifically looking at diabetic care in the older adult patient, and it's based off of the uh, Choosing Wisely recommendation on how to manage and where, where our goal should be with some of our older adult patients. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And so just keep in mind, if you look at this in the future, that this is up-to-date as of July 2015. So just keep that in the back of your mind uh, as we go through this. So at the outset, just want to be upfront that I have nothing to disclose. I don't have any financial ties or any sort of relationship with any manufacturers or, or product suppliers to the medical industry. So the actual statement from the American Geriatric Society's Choosing Wisely campaign is to avoid using medications to achieve hemoglobin A1C less than 7.5% in most adults age 65 and older. Moderate control is generally better. So let's briefly discuss the goals I like to try to achieve going through this talk. I want to go through some definitions so we're all at the same kind of level uh, of understanding what diabetes is, particularly type 2 diabetes, which is what we generally see in our older adult patients. Going to go through the function of insulin so we understand kind of why it's important, how it plays a role in the body's uh, normal function. Talk about screening and testing uh, of diabetes then. Talk about treatments for type 2 diabetes. And then finally, treatment goals and then some of the, the, the evidence and the, the studies to support what those treatment goals are. So diabetes in the older adults, so greater than 25% of adults over 65 have type 2 diabetes. And actually over 50% of those over 65 are either pre-diabetic or, or kind of that, that borderline, so greater than 6 on A1C, um, or diabetic. Um, so a large portion of the older adult population and it's really going to it's going to double the amount of actual case of diabetes that we have in the community is going to double in the next 20 years and much of that is because of the baby boomer population that's going to be rolling into this age group. There's also a clear link to the obesity epidemic with regards to type 2 diabetes and I'm sure we've all seen the the charts throughout time or the maps throughout time of the obesity epidemic and how that's gotten worse and we do know that that plays a con large contributing role to the onset of type 2 diabetes. But those over the age of 75 also have the greatest complication rates of end-stage renal disease, uh, heart attacks, vision impairments, and amputations with diabetes, but that also said, they're also the ones at most risk for being seen in ER or some sort of an um, urgent or emergent setting because of hypoglycemia secondary to the medications that they're being prescribed for the management of their diabetes. So there's a, a seesaw effect here of needing to adequately treat to reduce the risk of complications but at the same time not so much so they put them at risk. So there's a lot at stake on both ends. And then finally, as I said before, um, the, the number of older adults who have either pre-diabetes or diabetes is, is substantial. So let's briefly review the complications of diabetes. You see this gentleman on the um, side of the screen here. It's a gentleman on hemodialysis. And that's, of course, one of the known complications of diabetes. But so is heart disease, uh, retinopathy, 
uh, nephropathy or uh, kidney disease as we see over here, neuropathy, so lower extremity numbness and tingling, stroke, and then uh, peripheral vascular disease, all are known complications as well as death from these causes then. So I just want to define the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Again, making sure we're all on the same level here of understanding. So type 1 diabetes, or we generally have referred to as, you know, juvenile or younger diabetes, really, really what we need to remember this and think about is it's an autoimmune disorder where the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas are destroyed because of that autoimmune disorder. And those are the beta cells that get destroyed. Where type 2 diabetes is a different process. There's insulin being made by these beta cells but it's the the sensitivity to those to that insulin out in the peripheral tissues and the liver that is uh, not as good and it's this resistance to the insulin that that leads to the high blood sugars and and the diabetes let's talk about insulin so insulin is one of the uh, stronger anabolic hormones in the body and anabolic meaning that it stores so the the insulin is responsible for storing sugars and carbohydrates and helping convert those to uh, fat and storing them as fat um, and also helps with absorption of these uh, sugars and with the liver muscle and fat cells so just the glucose alone for it to get into muscle cells for it to get into fat cells it has to you know insulin has to be present for for it to do that and so insulin, it's produced in the islets of Langerhan, uh, which are uh, areas and nests of cells uh, in the pancreas. And specifically, the beta cells are the ones that are producing insulin. And insulin has a counterpart, so there's always a, a check and balance uh, for most all of the, of the normal physiology of the human body. And, and the, the balance to insulin is a thing called glucagon. And glucagon helps to increase serum glucose levels. And if you think of how glucose works, in many ways, glucagon is kind of doing the opposite. So glucose in the cellular level, it helps bind to the insulin receptor. And then it works in several ways. It helps bring glucose into the body, helps get glucose stored as glycogen, which is just a bunch of glucose molecules stuck one on the other, helps break down uh, glucose to pyruvate, and pyruvate then can be stored as a fatty acid or fat. And so this is another kind of schematic, and, and I'm putting this up to stress the importance And insulin is, you know, diabetes is not just about insulin and sugar, because insulin is involved with kind of the total energy management of, at, at the cellular level, and it's even involved with, with the development of proteins, is you need insulin to help take amino acids to protein, you need insulin to take glucose to glycogen, you need insulin to help bring the glucose into the cell, you need insulin to help take triglycerides, uh, which are free fats, and form, form them into free fatty acids, which are storage forms. And, and so that's why insulin is so important. And when it's not in the cell to do the job, um, why things can get so out of balance and dysregulated so quickly. And then looking at more of an organism standpoint, um, I'll direct your attention to this portion. So insulin has a negative effect on the liver. So the liver stores a lot of our glycogen or stored forms of, of glucose. And so when you develop insulin uh, resistance, the insulin normally will go and suppress the release of glucose made by the liver. 
But when you have insulin resistance, the insulin can't do that. And so the liver will start to produce more and more glucose and, and, and lead to higher blood glucose levels. And glucagon is there promoting this because the glycogen uh, remains you know, just as sensitive as it always has been. But then you also develop insulin resistance in the skeletal muscle where you can't clear that insulin that is being produced by the liver or that's being taken in through diet. It's not able to be as clear, uh, cleared as quickly from the serum because the sensitivity in those peripheral tissues is now decreased then as well. So there's a large interplay here, and it's not just as easy as, well, you give some insulin and the glucose goes in the muscles and then it's, it's, it's taken care of. It's also suppressing this production of chronic glucose production, um, which is necessary. That's necessary for that release of it. Uh, glucose is necessary for uh, when we're in the fasting state um, just to maintain, maintain levels. So there's a complex interplay here. And when it gets disrupted, uh, it really leads to a lot, of, a lot of dysregulation and problems. So now we take this to the normal physiology of changing. So what are the normal kind of changes of the body as it ages? Well, there's uh, increased adiposity, increased fat tissue. And fatty tissue, we know, does lead to increased insulin resistance. There's uh, increased sarcopenia. And sarcopenia is muscle wasting or um, decreased muscle mass. And so the amount of tissues out there that can readily burn this glucose decreases. There's relative inactivity because of arthritis and chronic disease and uh, that generally slowing down. Um, and so there's less burning of glucose through activities. There's a decline in pancreatic islet function, meaning less insulin is made on top of these kind of things that are leading to some insulin resistance. And then there's just a decline in glucose tolerance with aging. So there's just a natural increasing resistance to insulin anyway. So this, in addition to maybe some genetics or body habitus, can then really put our older adults at risk for developing type 2 diabetes later in life. So diabetes screening, when, when should we do that? When should we be thinking about this? Um, and the guidelines are pretty clear, or should we? Uh, I think we probably should. I think for symptomatic screening, uh, it's certainly worthwhile if a patient's coming in with polyuria, polydipsia, and, and the usual signs, the, the kind of prototypical signs of diabetes, which are these here. Um, but again, in our older adults, how many come in with weight loss and fatigue? Uh, that's a very common uh, complaint, a common issue that we, that we face. But that said, um, for asymptomatic screening, so if uh, adult, adults are overweight, so a BMI greater than recorded 25, all adults greater than 45, and then screening should be done every one to three years with either fasting blood glucose, a hemoglobin A1C, or by doing a glucose tolerance test. And from my own experience, trying to get an A1 hemoglobin A1C covered by Medicare can be a bit of a challenge if the patient hasn't been diagnosed with diabetes, but um, a hemoglobin A1C is diagnostic uh, and can be used for screening for diabetes, but sometimes you may have to go with the fasting blood glucose because of payee, because of the payer source. So glucose testing, um, so there's, like I said, um, the hemoglobin A1C or glycosylated hemoglobin. There's the finger stick testing that can be done with these uh, easily, you know, easily obtained uh, glucometers, and then there's venipuncture. So let's first talk about 
glycosylated hemoglobin. Uh, and what it does, it's measuring the amount of hemoglobin that's bound to glucose. So as hemoglobin is, uh, and red cells are made, they last, they live for 60 to 90 days. And so they're out circulating the body. And the more glucose that's out there, the more glucose that gets stuck to them. And this is kind of a diagram, uh, you know, diagram that's kind of representing that. So the longer these are out there circulating around, the longer those cells live out there that circulate around, the more glucose that gets stuck to them. And it's a very, fairly um, uh, consistent and easily uh, replicable rate for that. And this really, because those red cells last for somewhere between 16 and 90 days, uh, it really gives you a fairly good idea where blood glucose levels have been over the past three months. And it's really the kind of the gold standard for how your overall control um, or our patient's overall control has been over those past three months. And as I show you the, um, the hemoglobin O1Cs, this is the, the, you know, if you did a finger stick, this is what the finger stick level would be if a patient averages six at all times. They'd be averaging about 126 on their, on their blood glucose level. And so I just want you to remember, you know, this 8.5 area, um, because it's after 200 on the, on the blood glucose level that you start getting these symptoms of glucose in the urine and dehydration that can come with that. So that really, this 8.5 number is important for later on in the talk as we start talking about maybe goals of, of uh, diabetic control. And again, because of the nature of this, it doesn't pick up the peaks and valleys that naturally could exist, um, obviously, with this. So if someone has a hemoglobin A1C that doesn't show adequate control and they're checking morning blood glucose levels, and those do show control, then the next obvious thought then is, okay, what are they? What, what are their blood sugars two hours after they eat, and are they having hyperglycemia, or high, high blood glucose levels after they eat? So it can miss that, and that's where um, point of care testing can be, can be helpful. And anything over 6.5 is then considered a diagno diagnosis of, um, of, of uh, diabetes on the A1C. Um, but you need to be careful with it. Folks who are anemic, obviously, um, or anything that causes um, high turnover of those red cells or if they've recently been transfused, these are all things that are going to show um, you know, abnormalities. So you may have falsely you know, low or falsely normal blood glucose levels because some recently have been transfused, but as an example. So just keep that in mind as, as, you, as you use this for your testing. So you can do serum glucose uh, measures. Uh, this does have limitations. It's only a one point in time kind of testing, but it can be done throughout the day, which does add value for, uh, particularly if you're trying to manage a patient in there at the point where they need insulin, it can give you um, a little bit better data, maybe what they're doing uh, after they eat, for example, how they're tolerating meals. It's fairly easy to perform, assuming your patient doesn't mind sticking themselves uh, and getting that blood from their fingertips. Um, diabetes then is um, diagnosed with a random greater than or equal to 200 or a fasting greater than or equal to 126 and that's if you get two, two of those. And then there's uh, glucose tolerance testing and so this might be the patient who just kind of seems right there on the borderline there, they're maybe 126, 130 on their blood glucose levels fasting and getting glucose tolerance test can help, help diagnose that and that's a two hour test. So after you made the diagnosis, what sort of testing should be done uh, and evaluation should be done? And so getting obviously the hemoglobin A1C, so if you make this off of a, uh, a 
you know, finger stick, uh, getting an A1C and seeing what their control has been is, is important. Getting urinalysis and checking for glucose in the urine. Again, you start getting glucose in the urine when the serum glucose is greater than 200. Looking for microalbuminuria, which is a sign of early kidney damage. Getting chemistry panel, fasting lipids. Getting an ALT because if the if the management is going to include a statin or cholesterol-lowering medication, getting a baseline liver function could be beneficial. Getting a baseline EKG on these patients, that since they're more at risk for heart disease, could be beneficial too to make sure and kind of get a baseline EKG so in the future if they ever have any issues, you know kind of where they were at one time. Doing a foot exam because these patients are increased risk for um, uh, ulcerations and um, fractures as well as uh, neuropathy then of the feet and then doing a dilated eye exam to look for that retinopathy and just briefly jump back to the foot exam that's that's a very important part of the exam um, because they, they get both microvas they get microvascular changes as well as neuropathic changes so these folks are more at risk for fractures and charcoal foot and may not even feel it or have sensation of it because of, of neuropathy so um, just because someone has good point sense there with monofilament testing on, on foot exam, they may not have the best deeper tissue sensation. And so having a uh, low threshold for x-ray to look for uh, underlying bony structural changes um, could, could be uh, important for some patients. So just doing a good thorough foot exam at least once a year um, just to revisit that briefly there. So let's think about a scenario real quick. An 86-year-old female named Betty, uh, you file for a number of years. Uh, you get a hemoglobin A1C on her, and it's 8.8. .8. She's been declining over the past several years. She lives in, uh, in a nursing home and has moderate dementia. She needs assistance with most radials, um, but does remain continent of bladder and bowel. And what would be your next step in management for di diabetes? Would you start on medication? Would you follow her for a while? See how she's doing, see if she has other symptoms. I mean, give some thought to maybe what your A1C goal would be on this on this individual. Would it be 7.5? Would it be 6.5? We'll get to that, I think, in a little bit. I uh, probably have a better idea of maybe where you'd want to get Betty. So treatment and further assessment. So exercise and diet and uh, sometimes medications, sometimes injectable medications, and then a team-based approach to care, getting nutritionists and other folks involved can be uh, helpful for our patients. So it's not just a, a, a single answer uh, to the problem here. It's a multidisciplinary and multifaceted approach. So diabetic education then generally needs to be a multidisciplinary team. Many times having a case manager, it can be a nurse, um, to help make sure that patients are getting all of their appropriate testing and screening done that they need to throughout the year. Seeing a dietitian to help with dietary modifications, maybe seeing a physical therapist to help with uh, neuropathy and getting them more active, um, and then a clinician. So really reaching out to those in the community um, and those other health, uh, allied health professions to help really get a good plan in place uh, for these folks is important. We want to have ease of access uh, as best as we can for all, for all these you know services for all of our patients as, as much as we can. Um, and then getting it, like I said, nutritional assessment and diabetic uh, nutritional education uh, for these individuals. Lifestyle modification is kind of the foundation for treatment for this. 
need regular exercises, and it's preferred over the use of metformin for an impaired fasting glucose, and those are kind of in that borderline uh, zone. Now, now, recently there has been more data to show that metformin when used in that pre-diabetic, so the patient's got an A1C between 6 and 6.5, that using metformin earlier can help put off the progression to diabetes. So uh, there is a role for metformin, but it should be used as part of um, lifestyle modification. That includes regular exercise and then dietary modification uh, for these folks. You also should consider in our older adults reviewing geriatric syndromes because vascular dementia and Alzheimer's type dementia are twice as likely in these patients. And women have a higher rate of fractures after falls. Again, speaking to those microvascular changes at, uh, of, the, of the bone, put them at increased risk for fractures. Diabetes and comorbid conditions can really start to limit mobility and decrease function, particularly as they get peripheral neuropathy, maybe some peripheral vascular disease. Um, and then, um, God forbid, if they start having amputations, then that can really limit mobility. Um, and so finding ways to keep them as active and independent as possible. Um, and so doing functional assessments and having them maybe see occupational therapy or um, prosthetics if, if, if so needed. And then frailty, um, so the, the frail patient, so the patient who has uh, sarcopenia or wasting uh, of muscle is uh, much higher risk for hypoglycemia than as well. So assessing for frailty, maybe with the freed frailty criteria, so looking at things like unintentional weight loss and walking speed and grip strength and um, their kind of overall functioning and activities, um, you know, doing these sorts of assessments might help you pick up these frail patients who might not or would likely um, benefit from intense control and actually may put them at risk uh, for hypoglycemia and, and possible falls and injury from that. So um, other things to think about, rates of polypharmacy. So take your average diabetic patient who comes in and you get started on metformin and then say you add a second agent and they end up on a aspirin a day and maybe they need a cholesterol medication a day and they've got a little bit of microalbuminuria and now they're needing an ACE inhibitor. Well, there's five medications very quickly without even having to do much else. And so these patients have high rates of polypharmacy. Um, and so really trying to do a thorough medication assessment and having, trying to get a pharmacist maybe involved if you've got one available to you to review that medication list for appropriateness of your medications or alternative uh, treatment options. Um, higher rates of depression can be seen uh, in this population. And then uh, one in five older adults report vision impairment then with this as well as well as incontinence. Some of this could be because of the neuropathy that develops. Some of it could be because of more difficult times keeping their blood sugars under 200 and then increased urine production. So they have a lot of issues that they have as older adults that our younger folks don't. So medication, really start to look for that when lifestyle is not sufficient. Uh, and there's many different guidelines in terms of what should be first and what should be second and that sort of thing. Um, and there's many different medication options out there. Um, but I'm going to go through the ones that I kind of view as uh, most relevant and have maybe some of the most data and maybe some more most safety data regarding their use. So uh, metformin is uh, universally first line, and this has the best data for mortality reduction. It increases insulin sensitivity of the peripheral tissue, so that means it helps the insulin get utilized and glucose get picked up by the muscle, for example. But it also helps with insulin sensitivity at the level of the liver, 
so less glucose is produced at the liver uh, from gluconeogenesis. So uh, it's very important and, and has some of the most data for its use with decreased cardiovascular adverse events and, and decreased uh, overall mortality. Uh, lowest risk for hypoglycemia, again, it's increasing the sensitivity. It's not in, it's not increasing the amount of insulin production. It's just increasing the sensitivity of the tissues to the insulin that's already being produced. Uh, but it can have GI side effects such as diarrhea, nausea, and such. Um, and that's probably the limiting step. So I, I think this is such an important medication that to abruptly and immediately start a patient on the highest therapeutic dose, which is a total of 2,500 milligrams a day, I think, um, risks burning a very important bridge. And so I'd recommend starting slow and increasing over time as the patient can tolerate. Particularly, if they tolerate 500 milligrams once a day but can't tolerate twice a day, well, then you can drop them back. And at least they've got some buy-in, some trust in the medication, trust in you for that lower dose. So trying to start low and move up from there. Um, but it does have some, in my opinion, rather arbitrary uh, dosing guidelines, the first being a creatinine 1.4 in, fe in females and a creatinine 1.5 in males. Um, it's indicated that we shouldn't use metformin over that. Um, I personally, and I want you to kind of practice as you feel comfortable, but um, I personally, I'll, I'll follow more glomerular filtration rate or GFR, and I'll look for a GFR of 30 or less, and then I'll say, okay, it's probably time to get rid of the metformin. Um, and that's an increased risk of lactic acidosis with that. But that's more of a class effect, seeing what the different medication other than metformin, and that medication isn't, um, isn't on the market. But just keep that in mind. And the other thing is in those over 80, uh, it, it's not really recommended in those over 80, but again, it's because it wasn't fully studied. And so I think keeping an eye on the kidney function, I think metformin is a very important medication. Keep an eye on kidney function, monitoring for side effects is really um, the best way to go about doing this. But find your own comfort level to practice uh, with those two um, guidelines. I just mentioned how I practice, uh, but find find your own comfort level. Uh, the sulfonylureas. Um, the next ones I'm kind of going to go through are kind of considered second-line agents. So sulfonylureas, they really help to increase pancreatic insulin release. Um, and that's really what they do, help increase insulin. And so like I said, insulin is a very strong anabolic hormone, meaning it helps build up fat stores and such. So weight gain is um, a side effect with this, as is low blood sugars. And low blood sugars are more likely to happen with first-generation um, sulfonylureas like glyburide. So glipizide is probably a safer choice uh, in your older adult patients. And then um, this is something from the American Diabetic Association that says really should be adding this to metformin or after you tried metformin. And I think that's that really is a comeback to metformin again. I think all these are after you've tried metformin and, and, and the patient's not been tolerant to it or in addition to metformin. And uh, again, risk for hypoglycemia uh, with this class of medications, um, but generally well tolerated uh, if used uh, carefully and cautiously. So the DDP4 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists, so these are called incretin mimetics. And so incretin is released from the gut when we eat. And so we eat, we're going to have this uh, glucose load coming, and so the body's way of dealing with that is releasing incretin, which then goes to the pancreas and stimulates insulin release. So DDP-4 inhibitors, um, they, uh, DDP-4 breaks down 
incretin. Um, and so DDP4 inhibitors then prevent incretin from being broken down. So in some ways it helps the insulin, and more insulin get released from the pancreas. And then GLP-1 agonists, again, they act very similar to incretin um, and promote insulin release from the pancreas. And so you get decreased gastric absorption of glucose as well as increased insulin production. And with it, you get decreased glucagon release. Uh, mortality data for these is sparse. And really, mortality data for everything except uh, metformin as, as individual agents is, is rather sparse. Um, there is a significant risk for nausea with these medications, uh, particularly like with Victoza. Uh, nausea can be a big side effect, so increasing that slowly um, is, is uh, the word of caution there. And there has been some concern about increased risk for pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer with this. That said, there's been some recent studies that have looked at pancreatitis with things like Genuvia and such, and it doesn't seem to be um, that high. Um, and, and the pancreatic cancer risk one, again, um, that's something that is sparsely in the literature, and so I don't think the risk is that awful substantial. But that said, too, um, you know, you just, I think, need to keep that in the back of your brain as we teach our patients and talk to our patients about these things. So these medications, as I said, Genuvia and Bayeda and Victoza. So Genuvia is the DDP-4 inhibitor, and Bayeda and Victoza are the um, GLP-1 agonists. And these are, you know, the Victoza, for example, that's an injectable medication. So if you're trying to avoid injectable medications for a patient, um, you know, and, and they've got a rather substantial uh, difference between their goal A1C and where they're at, you know, um, an injectable medication that's probably more effective would be like a, a long-acting insulin. So... Um, Metformin gives you about a point and a half to two point reduction on your A1C. Uh, sulfonylurea is a point to about a point and a half uh, on your A1C reduction. These medications about a half a point to 0 0.7 um, reduction on the A1C. Um, and then the TZDs, uh, which I don't use, again, it's about 0 0.5 to 0 0.7 on the A1C reduction. So if they're, you know, um, 7.5 and you put them on uh, Victoza, they may not get much below 7 with that. Um, and so keep that in mind as you're kind of balancing cost and, and that sort of thing. And also what the patient's goals are. If they want to try everything that they can before they go on an injectable medication, you know, um, just keep in mind what, what the A1C reduction is. So TZDs um, help enhance insulin sensitivity, so Actose and Avandia. Um, side effects, so Avandia, um, it was causing a lot of fluid retention and then uh, leading to heart failure, and that actually is now uh, off the market. And then uh, these are add-on therapies to metformin, um, and really, you know, I would really consider these, or sulfonylureas before these. And the problem with, with Actos is that in, in it's got a black box warning uh, here in the United States, and in France, you actually can't get the medication because of an increased risk of bladder cancer. Um, so Actos is an option, but I think it just, it, again, needs to uh, have a good conversation with your patient before starting it about kind of some of the risks with it. But everything comes with risks, I suppose, but th this is one that, that appears, appears a little more risky as a class of medications, and I think there are different options out there that we can use. And then insulin. So insulin in my brain kind of becomes third line, and that's why I can't get folks under control. So it's long-acting insulins, and they have good hemoglobin A1C reduction um, potential, um, you know, anywhere from 
you know, one point on their A1C, um, you know, till you know, three, five points on their A1C, it can really uh, reduce it uh, fairly substantially. But again, remember, insulin is going to promote weight gain, so, um, and you can also get hypoglycemia with these medications. And obviously, caution in renal impairment, insulin's cleared by the kidney. So if someone has a renal impairment, um, then insulin's going to stick around longer. And uh, the beers list actually recommends against sliding scale insulin. Um, they recommend fixed dose insulin with meals. Um, so sliding scale insulin is short acting insulin, so that's like mealtime insulin. And the reason they recommend against that is because it, it, the sliding scale, the, the, the idea behind it is, you know, you're checking uh, someone's glucose before they eat lunch, for example, and their glucose is 250. Well, that 250, really, that, that, that needed to be treated four or five hours ago when they ate their breakfast. And so that's why the side and scale insulin is, is a problem is you're really playing catch up for what you should what should have been done, you know, four or five hours ago. Um, and so trying to find good control with fixed dose insulin uh, with each meal is probably going to give you safer uh, control of, of your patient's blood sugars and less volatility. So there's a, several different groups that have given recommendations in the management of diabetes, and there's the European Diabetes Working Party for Older People, and they gave out guidelines in 2011. And this was kind of their algorithm for how uh, you, you start treating diabetes. So three to six months of dietary and lifestyle um, uh, changes, then put them on metformin. If that's not enough, then add uh, DDP-4 inhibitor, which again is, is a medication such as Genuvia. Um, and then if that's not sufficient, then putting them on insulin. So you can see that they really say metformin, metformin plus a second agent, and then insulin plus metformin. And you can see off to the side here that um, you know metformin plus a low risk sulfonylurea or GLP-1 agonist such as Victoza um, are options here at this level. Um, and kind of trying to take each patient as they are. So um, again, you know, do you want weight loss in your frail patients is what they're bringing up on this side. So um, do give consideration to some of the side effects with these meds um, as you're obviously going through them. So I have my second scenario for you is, is John, 78-year-old. He's got long-standing diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension. He's got coronary vascular disease previously grafted with CHF class 2. He'd like to have you review his medication, stop as many as possible. Uh, he's independent with his IADLs, uh, so independent activities they daily living such as managing finances and medications and such. And other than his chronic medical conditions, he feels he's doing well. And so I think if as we're considering diabetes specifically for what medications he can avoid, what would his hemoglobin A1C goal be? And that's really at the heart of what things can you maybe consider getting rid of from a diabetes standpoint. So let's think about that and let's kind of look at some of the data to talk about that. So what are treatment goals? This really gets at the heart of it here. Um, so there's conflicting research data. So there was the um, UK Prospective Diabetes Study and, and this was a study um, where they didn't enroll anyone over the age of 65 and they had two arms. One where they tried to get them their A1C down to six and another one where it was less stringent control. And so it was a younger group of folks in their mid to late 50s, um, strict control versus uh, lax control. And there was a, a much better uh, 
outcomes in terms of mortality and heart attack reduction and stroke reduction in those who had tighter control. Okay, uh, and it was an early intention to treat trial and, uh, like I said, decrease mortality, heart attacks, and microvascular disease such as nephropathy and such. And as you can see, this is taken from their study. These are hazard ratios. And as you can see, so a hazard ratio less than one means it's, it's, it's um, bringing about benefit for the patient, okay? And you can see down here deaths from any cause uh, with a reduction over time. Um, for this for for more intensive therapy and a p-value of less than 0 0.05 meaning it's significant so th that is where more aggressive diabetes management uh, really started to get looked at as, as maybe this A1C goal being a very important thing um, again knowing that we have data to support the use of metformin for uh, mortality reduction we don't really know what second agent's best, there's some research going on to that now, but ultimately getting them to a certain A1C goal by one means or another um, does show mortality benefit, at least in the younger group. Okay, now here's where the conflict starts. There's three trials, the ACCORD trial, the ADVANCE trial, and then the uh, VAD trial that came out, and they looked at uh, diabetic control in our older adult patients, and so these three studies they weren't even that old of patients, at least as I think think about uh, older adults as a geriatrician. These were patients that they enrolled in their late 60s, so older, over 65, um, and, and, and really no one over, their average age was not in, in their 70s, okay? Um, and so really these patients had established diabetes. They had known coronary disease for many of these patients. Um, and so they were high, the highest risk patients, really, that we have. They were our gentleman earlier, our, our gentleman John. And so what they found in this group, so this is the ACCORD trial, and uh, the intervention group had an A1C goal of 6. And then the control group had an A1C of 8.1. And there was actually excessive deaths in the intensive treatment arm, so much so that they actually stopped the study early. And uh, what they did find was that cardiovascular and stroke deaths did not reduce between the two groups. Um, and hypoglycemia, uh, symptomatic hypoglycemia, was uh, far more common in the treatment arm. And then this is, again, from the ACCORD trial. And you can see, so at time zero, there were over 5,000 patients in each arm. And then take this out to, you know, time five years, and there's only... 450 or so patients left in each arm, and it's only at that point that you start to see uh, a difference in outcomes between standard therapy and intensive treatment um, with regards to percentage of those folks who are having events. Um, and then deaths from any cause. Again, the intensive treatment was having increased risk of death uh, throughout the entire course compared to standard treatment. And again, without much or it doesn't appear any benefit in um, in in uh, in outcomes there. So in the advanced trial, um, they looked at maybe less tight control, so an A1C of less than 6.5% in the um, intervention arm, and then 7.3% in the in the control arm. And there's no mortality difference between the the two groups no cardiovascular uh, benefits between the two groups, and really the only difference was reduced uh, kidney disease in the uh, more intensely treated group. But there was severe hypoglycemia compared to the less intensely treated group.
Um, and you look at, again, depths. And so you're talking here, I'll just use this because the line there, it's easy to, easy to see. 48 months or four years, deaths from all causes was essentially the same. And so what this is showing is that it takes five or more years for us to start reaping any benefits in terms of mortality reduction with intensive treatment of diabetes. And so as we think about our older adults, and these were studies done on patients who were in their late 60s, not even patients who were in the late 70s. And so as we think about our patients, we need to consider what their prognosis is and how many of our patients who are uh, diabetic have only diabetes as, as their only comorbidity. I mean, they have no other issues. And if so, then maybe a careful, more intensive treatment might be appropriate. But as you can see from these studies, it doesn't seem to play out that way. And then from the VAD study, they looked at even less tight controls. So 6.9% uh, in the intervention group and 8.4% in the control group. And again, no cardiovascular difference in terms of events or death rate. Um, there was some reduction in microalbuminuria. Um, but again, um, that's a really uh, softer outcome compared to heart attack and death. And um, so what they did find, and the one thing they can speak to is that, you know, those who are diagnosed uh, sooner, so those who are diagnosed within the past 15 years, may have benefited from more intensive control. Um, so those patients who are 70 who have been, you know, diagnosed at 60 uh, might benefit from it, maybe because they just haven't had the long-term health out, you know, effects from the diabetes yet. But um, so again... And, and again, as we look at the probability of survival, the intensive treatment group and standard treatment group at six years, um, really with a p-value of 0 0.14, it's the same. Uh, deaths are many caused, six years, uh, it's the same. So uh, as we think about this, we need to consider that. And you look at um, intensive therapy with symptoms, over 1,300 patient, standard therapy with symptoms, 384. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of risk for hypoglycemia for these patients. Um, now, not too many, um, you know, who had, you know, impaired consciousness, but again, a lot of patients who had symptomatic hypoglycemia. And, and for what benefit is really what that study's asking. So, again, it's conflicting data. The UK General Pract uh, Practice Research Database that shows that uh, early aggressive uh, treatment of diabetes. Uh, at least in younger adults, does show mortality benefit um, versus what we what we do know. And what we do look do know is that there's a U-shaped uh, benefit with hemoglobin A1C from the UK general practice research data um, in terms of mortality. And it really the nadir's at about 7.5 percent is where the lowest mortality is. So that's kind of the the sweet spot. Uh, and that's even on these these younger folks. Um, that 7.5% seems fairly safe and seems to impart enough mortality benefit, that's about where you want to go. So um, looking at the guidelines, so there's guidelines brought by the American Geriatric Society in 2013, um, and these were kind of done in conjunction with the American Diabetic Association. So A1C goal, as you think about your older adult patients, take Betty, the nursing home patient earlier who had um, impairment of her ADLs and such. Um, you know, 8 to 9% uh, with poor health and limited life expectancy seems appropriate for them. Um, for most patients with diabetes, 75 to 8% should probably be the hemoglobin A1C goal. And then the healthy adults who just has diabetes maybe developed it when they were, you know, 74 and, and they have no other health issues. 
um, than maybe uh, 7 to 7.5 on their hemoglobin A1C score. And then this, again, comes from um, the uh, consensus report from the American Geriatric Society and the American Diabetic Association. And again, it's saying about, it's saying about the same thing. And, and as you consider these different cutoffs, so take their cutoff of eight, of complex to intermediate um, disease with, you know, intermediate remaining life expectancy, so five-ish years to ten-ish years, um, you know, all it takes is three comorbidities. And they list them right down here, things such as falls, um, things such as uh, depression, um, things such as arthritis are enough to say that, you know, that's enough of a burden of disease. And if they have those three things or some incontinence, three of those constitute uh, uh, raising that A1C goal to, to 8%. So um, do give that consideration as you, as you uh, kind of think about A1C goals on your patients. Um, so thinking about other guidelines that, that, that you know, other things to manage, um, cholesterol is an important one. And, and really we see the benefits with cholesterol treatment within, you know, three to five years of treatment. And statin therapy uh, along with diet and activity are really the foundations for treatment there. Um, and from the most recent guidelines from the uh, American Heart Association, which were in 2013, um, the, it, no longer is it really an LDL goal. It's more about an, an intensity of statin medication. Um, and I'll talk about that in just a quick second. Um, but those guidelines really start to run out after age 75. So for those who are 75 and older, when it comes to cholesterol management and statin therapy, it's looking at... Um, at their overall risk panel and maybe just maintaining the status quo of what they've been on and not adjusting. That's really the American Heart Association's recommendation for statin management for those over the age of 75. It's okay. They've been on a atorvastatin 10 milligrams. That's what they continue on without change unless, of course, they have side effects to it. Um, so higher and moderate intensity statins, um, so these are things like simvastatin 20 or 40 milligrams. Don't use simvastatin 80 milligrams as a high risk of rhabdomyolysis and uh, a black box warning associated with that um, from the um, FDA. High intensity statins then are torvastatin 20 or 40 milligrams or suvastatin 20 milligrams. Uh, lower intensity statin, so torvastatin, 10 or 20 milligrams is like a moderate intensity statin. And so getting folks on these uh, can be beneficial for mortality reduction uh, and something to think about. Um, but again, if they're getting diagnosed later in life, uh, 75, 80 years old, and it starts to get in this gray zone with the American Heart Association in terms of whether or not you should put these patients on a statin medication, I think that's an individual discussion with your patient and kind of really trying to you put in some framework around them in terms of where you think their prognosis is uh, for the next five to ten years and then also whether or not you think they can can handle it. Um, uh, two to three years is what, what I've got here for mortality benefit but I think you know I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say up to five years for that mortality benefit. Um, but other cholesterol-lowering medications such as azetamide uh, and fish oil and such those really unfortunately don't carry a lot of data that they have mortality benefit. That said, there was just one recent study that did come out that simvastatin with uh, azetamide um, in folks who just had a heart attack might reduce um, uh, recurrence and death. Um, and so uh, 
just know that that, that study's out there um, and it came out I think within the past month or so um, and just know that's out there again that's a very subset and very select group of patients again they just you know these are starting patients on simvastatin and acetamide I think while they were in the hospital I'm not an expert on that study at the moment but um, you, you want to review that for yourself because it was a very select group it wasn't for a kind of primary prevention so improving care for the old adults here. So what, what are they recommended for hypertension gu guidelines? Um, goal is less than 140 over 90 uh, with the harm if you uh, try to get the systolic less than 120. Um, the uh, JNC8 working group actually recommends those over the age 65 um, could actually benefit from a systolic up to 150. And I don't think that's unreasonable. And from one class of medication to the other, assuming they don't have you know, diabetic nephropathy where they need it, you know, where they could benefit from an ACE inhibitor or, or, or an ARB, um, there's really no benefit between different classes of medications. It's just getting them to go. Uh, Monitor electrolytes and renal function. Um, and again, this is consistent with JNC8 working groups recommendations. Um, so aspirin then, um, if they have diabetes and coronary vascular disease, consider aspirin, uh, but insufficient evidence regarding primary prevention. So someone who hasn't had a coronary vascular event or, or stroke, um, uh, plus minus whether or not uh, aspirin use is going to be beneficial. And doses greater than 81 milligrams don't show any, any benefit. So uh, low-dose baby aspirin, as it's called, at 81 milligrams. Uh, I recommend all of our diabetic patients to quit smoking. Um, it's always a good thing. Uh, dilated eye exam, at least every two years for low-risk patients. I try to get my patients in every year uh, for a diabetic uh, eye exam. Uh, a yearly foot exam, this includes a vascular exam, neurologic exam, and then kind of visual inspection of the foot to make sure there aren't any ulcers or anything. And I, I really, I try to recommend to my patients, they should try to have someone, someone of themselves, look at the bottoms of their feet every day um, so that things aren't missed um, and, and less likely to have a, a gangrenous foot by the time it, it gets picked up. Uh, microabmenorrhea should be tested annually. Uh, but once they kind of have microabmenorrhea, it kind of sets your path down having the need for an ACE inhibitor or, or, or an ARB. Um, and so I think once it's kind of been established, I don't think you need to necessarily follow it annually um, because your treatment's not going to change. But um, again, that's recommended that we do it annually. Um, and then exercise 150 minutes per week. So that's 30 minutes, five times a week a moderate intensity exercise. So I, again, kind of recommend to my patients, they get out there for a walk um, five times a week, that if they walk just a little bit quicker, they couldn't carry on a conversation. And I think that's a pretty good pace for them. Um, so additional recommendations then, screening for depression uh, within uh, three months and then annually, since depression rates are higher. Uh, screening for dementia, particularly if there's any concern for any functional decline um, at any point. Uh, screen for incontinence, as these folks are certainly more at risk. And patients with incontinence, I'm going to tell you that they have incontinence. It's a very um, uh, difficult thing, I think, to admit, even to a, a physician or healthcare provider. So I think you just need to be mindful and, and pleasant as we bring it up, but bring it up just the same. And then screening for falls annually, since these patients have uh, the neuropathy and uh, increased risk for vascular disease and increased risk for fractures then uh, when and when and if they do fall. Um, so screening for falls annually and then review medications at each visit uh, trying to reduce that pill burden uh, of unnecessary, uh, unnecessary, maybe medications that they're less likely to benefit from.
So coming back, so there, there's now a total of eight choosing wisely from the American Geriatric Society, but I think these are all very important. I think Dr. Clark um, gave a talk regarding the use of um, PEG tubes uh, for feeding in dementia, but um, I want to go through them because I think these are very important and good, good kind of general principles, um, but don't use NSAIDs first choice uh, to treat behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Um, again, we kind of thoroughly went through number three there. Um, don't use benzodiazepines or other sedative hypnotics in older adults as first choice for insomnia, agitation, delirium, makes it worse, increased risk of falls and fractures, uh, MVAs, um, and, and lead to death. And same with the antipsychotic use, that's an increased risk of death with that. Um, and then don't use antimicrobials to treat bacteria in older adults unless specific urinary tract symptoms are present. So actual, you know, increased frequency, dysuria, they have fevers, um, but don't just screen patients uh, willy-nilly um, and don't treat patients who have asymptomatic bacteria as there's a very high rate in these older adults for them to have, um, you know, chronically colonized, chronically infected bladder um, and uh, maybe someday I'll get to talk about that uh, with you guys. So um, those are the choosing wisely. Look them up, read them. Uh, there's five additional ones, uh, which I didn't include in this PowerPoint, um, but these are the first five. Um, so I'm going to list my references um, as I put this together. I think this, uh, the pharmacist letter here, it's very nice, um, and it goes through each class of medication and uh, kind of expected hemoglobin A1C reduction. And uh, then it gives uh, associated cost, you know, what's the out-of-pocket cost for these medications for a month's supply. And I think though that, that it, I think it is important um, as it seems that hemoglobin A1C level after metformin is what matters. And so trying to get them to goal um, in a cost-effective means um, is, is, uh, is something I think we should all try to give some thought to. So uh, either way, I thank you all for your time, and I hope that uh, my talk was it would give you some uh, information on diabetic care in the older adult and uh, just uh, take good care of those folks and I thank you all for your time.